Hello and welcome to the Doc Arena podcast in association with Film Ireland. My name is Ross Whitaker, and every fortnight or so I want to dig deeply into the motivations of documentary filmmakers. How do they choose their subject material and what approaches and strategies do they employ to fund, craft and distribute their work? In this episode I'm delighted to speak to Luke Sewell about his feature doc Trust No One, The Hunt for the Crypto King, which is on Netflix from March 30th. This stylish thriller retrospectively pieces together the story of crypto king Jerry Cotton, who built Canada's largest cryptocurrency exchange only to suddenly die in mysterious circumstances, taking the passwords to $250 million worth of customers' fund accounts to the grave with him. This film follows the bid by a number of individual crypto investors turned sleuths as they attempt to discover the truth of Jerry's death, which has cost them vast sums of money and, they suspect, is nothing more than an exit scam. Will they be able to unravel the mystery, find Jerry Cotton, and finally get their money back? Here's my conversation with the director, Luke Sewell. Luke Sewell, thanks a million for joining me. Just to start off with, Luke, can you give people an idea of what the film is about? Yes, thank you for having me, Ross. Um, so basically, the film is it's the story of the online investigation that sort of sprung up after the suspicious death of uh, a cryptocurrency whiz kid by the name of Jerry Cotton. Um, he supposedly died while he was on his honeymoon in India. And uh, he basically, at the time, he ran this cryptocurrency exchange called uh, Quadriga CX. And he was the only one that had the passwords. So when his wife announced his death, actually a month after his death, all the people that held money on his exchange, I think there was $250 million Canadian dollars worth of money on this exchange, uh, they woke up to this news and their money was seemingly locked away forever. So obviously they were horrified by that situation. Some of them had, I mean, all their life savings on it. One one guy in the film um, had half a million dollars worth of crypto wrapped up on this exchange. So we kind of tell the story of, of, of their reaction and their online investigation. Um, the, the people who had money on the exchange sort of started looking into the story. They teamed up with some intrepid journalists and they kind of basically go down the rabbit hole really to see, you know, to, to look at the sort of underbelly of this, this company and, and the sort of official narrative starts to unravel very quickly. And they start to have suspicions that, you know, maybe he was still alive and he'd actually run off with their, their money. So in a nutshell, that's that's the kind of story, really. And so how did you come to be making it? So actually, I'd, I'd, been make, I'd made a film, uh, part of a series called Bad Sport for Netflix, and it had gone very well. Um, and uh, actually, uh, one of the commissioners sort of mentioned this, this um, idea that, that, that um, you know, films had pitched to them. Um, and so I kind of I kind of got in. I got involved in it that way, really, and so I went to meet Minnow. Um, there had been a Vanity Fair article that had been written about the story in various other sort of press when it had kind of happened, um, and I was kind of immediately uh, like, "Wow, okay, this this is quite an incredible story." I, I sort of was very attracted to it, and so I became kind of attached. And uh, from there, there was a bit a bit more development work, and then the pandemic hit, so it kind of stalled. So it was a few months before it kind of eventually got greenlit. Um, but then it did, yeah. So, so yeah, so it was, it was very much, it had been developed by, by Minnow, by Adriana, um, Adriana Timko, Minnow, with uh, David Moulton and uh, Reva Sharma, great development team there. Um, and it just seemed 
I mean, it seemed an incredibly outlandish story. It had a real element of mystery to it. At the time, you know, it, it had really only just kind of happened. Um, so it was quite fresh and it was kind of live. No one really knew if he was alive or dead. Um, you know, there were there were reports that the you know the uh, the RCMP in Canada were were going to exhume his body, um, and it just seemed really exciting. And also, I I kind of I like quite I like mysteries and thrillers, so I was very drawn to the sort of mysterious aspects of it. Yeah, going back to hoop schemes, where I kind of first saw your name, even though I know you've made several docs before that, I really loved that doc amongst the the bad sports, which was a great series as well, but. One of the things about both of those docs and, and hoop schemes, I suppose, for people listening, is about a betting scam around college basketball. And there's quite a lot to explain in it in terms of tr- making sure that people understood how you made those kinds of bets and, and that you were betting on margins and so on and so forth. And, and in this as well. So you have these kind of unfolding thriller dramas, but you also have to explain as you go along, how how do you find that process? It's always a tricky balance, isn't it? Because you want to keep the story moving, but you need to make sure people understand what's happening. Yes, it's a good question, and also cryptocurrency. I mean, yeah, there was a big element of that in 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 hoop schemes, and I think how did I deal with it? I spent quite a few weeks uh, sort of sketching out different graphics on the wall of the edit to try and explain how this ridiculous system works, but. In America, people are very familiar with, but globally, it kind of it didn't seem so familiar, and it wasn't familiar to me. And kind of crypto as a subject is sort of uh, has a similar thing. I mean, I didn't actually know much about crypto at all before before taking the film on. And generally, the first thing anyone would ever say when I sort of mentioned to them that I was making this film and it was set in the world of cryptocurrency is like, "Well, can you explain Bitcoin to me? What is it? How does it work? How does it have any value?" And 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 it seemed to be this really kind of complicated subject that people were just kind of mystified by. And I think, to be honest, it's like, it's like I explained it as much as you needed to, and as little as, as, as possible, really, because it, it wasn't really about cryptocurrency, really. I mean, it was the sort of world and the, and the setting and the setting of Bitcoin. But actually, you know, it, it kind of, if if you just think you know if you think crypto and just read money you know if that's all you really need to know for the story, um, but obviously you know I think you know crypto is a big thing at the moment and people kind of are excited by it so we needed to obviously you know um, uh, you know address it in some way and explain things like the blockchain um, but in as layman's terms as possible and actually when I was doing the interviews with with various contributors they're all incredibly knowledgeable amazingly into it. It was often quite difficult to get them to try and explain it in a more sort of friendly way. And they'd often go into huge amounts of detail that I would have to, I would just very quickly get very lost. So it was kind of, I mean, it sort of helped that I hopefully like the audience was slightly baffled by it and kind of found my feet as we went through. So hopefully it kind of in the film, you know, you, 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 there's enough there, there's enough info there that, you know, it works. Yeah, and you kind of have to explain as well how the exchange works, don't you? Like how people would yeah. put their money, you know, it's a place that they put their money. But I mean, I suppose it's not that different from any other type of investing. Once no. once you stop worrying about not understanding what cryptocurrency is, I suppose. Yeah, if you just think of it like a bank, you know, a cryptocurrency exchange essentially is is kind of like a bank in a way and a place where you can buy and sell it and also trade it with other people. So kind of bank come bureau de change in some way. Um, and 
Yeah, I think if you if you think of it like that, then it's it's sort of not too difficult to get your head around, hopefully. So where did you start then? Because you have a number of interviewees and they come in as the story unfolds. And you have to reveal, even though you know the story in its entirety, there are quite a number of reveals along the way. And I kind of don't want to go into them too much because it's more enjoyable for people to watch them as, as they happen. Did you lay out the whole story on paper yourself first, or did you have to discover stuff from the interviewees as you're going along? So I I worked with uh, an incredibly brilliant producer, Zoe Hutton. Um, who so how I like to work, I like to I, less so in my old stock stuff, but in the in the kind of more retrospective films, where possible, I like to kind of have a bit of distance from the contributors until I'm in the interview situation with them. So Zoe was very much there getting the story from the contributors and with film, uh, you know, Zoom interviews and transcribe stuff and we transcribe stuff together. And then I would sort of take that and I would begin to plot based on what they'd sort of told her in the research chats and also stuff that I'd been reading in the newspapers and, and what have you. Um, and also, you know, conversation that had been happening online on Telegram because it's a big part of the story is this sort of online investigation that unfolds on social media. I then very carefully again, with the help of Zoe, structured a story. Also, one thing that became quite apparent quite quickly was that actually the story unfolded quite quickly over the space of like a few weeks. A lot of the developments all sort of happened at the same time, and it was also multiple perspectives. So a lot of my work before shooting anything was just trying to just work out that structure. I really noticed that, that it, you feel like the story is unfolding for different people at the same time, separate from each other. And and so I thought of that as quite a tricky thing from a storytelling point of view, but you handled it perfectly. So did you grapple with that at all? Or were there things that you learned, I suppose, from trying to do that? It was a tricky story. I mean, it was, so for example, Hoop Schemes was a, a much straighter story, you know, and played out in a much less complicated way. I mean, I know there was some sort of complicated information that you needed to get across, but this was a lot more complicated. It was also a lot more based, you know, there was a huge element of conspiracy theories. There were massive rabbit holes. You know, there was, you name the theory, someone had had it. So it was, and it was also like trying to find, you know, what the line is, you know, because there was various, various points in the film, people think he's, he's alive, he's dead. He may have been murdered and, you know, it may have been someone else pulling the strings. And so trying to kind of weave that into a satisfying narrative was, yeah, incredibly, incredibly tricky. Um, but I kind of feel like we got there. And, 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 you know, in terms of, you know, how we planned it out, obviously, you know, the film, you sort of write your film three times in a sense, don't you? You know, you kind of script it. And when I say script it, you know, plan the structure and what you, how, you know, the idea of scripting a documentary often sounds completely mental, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, you sort of, you have your plan, you go in with your plan, whether that's a script or beat sheet or whatever, then you kind of rewrite it again in a sense when you're doing the interviews and then in the edit. So, you know, we had kind of several stabs at this um, and it was not a straightforward film to make in that, in that sense. And it also revolved, you know, because... It needed to feel like the whole, you know, the whole kind of vision for the film was like this online thriller that was playing out, you know, with these multiple characters all looking into this mystery and trying to, you know, solve it. It was also an element of, of certain contributors did more investigation than others. So how do you make it feel like they're all in on, on this? You know, so there were, there, were, there were various kind of storytelling challenges um, that were kind of fun to kind of try and resolve. You've got a great 
group of interviewees. One is anonymously on camera. Uh, another one is the sister of his partner. Uh, and, and you even get a feel for when she introduces herself that it was a bit of a decision for her to participate. Was a part of the development process for you to get them on board or were they already on board when you arrived? So a lot of them weren't on board. So there was a key... So um, in the development phase, we'd, we'd, um, uh, uh, the journos had been um, contacted and, and were kind of on board. Um, and a couple of the online sleuths, um, Ali and... No, I think it was just Ali actually at that point. And there were there were some other people that had lost money that were also kind of attached. But we went through we when 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 I sort of came on board to direct and when Zoe came on board to produce, we did very much you know, we ramped it up. We we had to find some more people and, and one of the key uh contributors uh was uh QCX Int, which stands for Quadriga Currency Exchange Intel or Intelligence. And he's our anonymous contributor who you see in the film wearing a fox head mask um uh he was key as he had done a huge amount of 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 digging online and 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 sort of you know he was like a online ninja and he took quite a lot of persuading and that was you know all all credit to zoe and her amazing ability to to, to sort of convince him to to take part because obviously you know there was a lot of there's a lot of sort of suspicion in the world of crypto you know it's quite a suspicious world and you know these guys that had lost their money had obviously you know there's kind of there was shame in that and they were you know feeling down about it and um you know they weren't particularly kind of trusting so there was a lot of work to to try and you know convince them that you know it would be great to help them tell their story. And I think a lot of them felt as, as well that they wanted to tell their story and they wanted to be heard. And, and also that there was a sense that they hadn't been heard by the authorities. Um, and, they, and, you know, at the time when we embarked on filming it, there was a very much a sense that, you know, they, and for some of them there still is actually a sense that they, can get, that they could get their money back and maybe participating in this might, might in some way help or, you know, highlight the story. Um, so yeah, there was a huge casting effort, and, and in terms of Kim, she came on incredibly late, actually. Um, so we actually extended the edit by two weeks. We didn't; she wasn't in the film until sort of week eighteen of the of the, of the edit, um, and we we just desperately needed some someone to voice to be a kind of a voice for for Jen, um, Jerry's wife, um, particularly because she became a a big focus of 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 you know, investor, user, quadricular users, whatever you want to call them, their attention. Um, and Jen herself proved elusive. So it was great that Kim, you know, was willing to to, to be involved um, and, 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 you know, tell Jen's side of the story. Yeah, it's very important. And one of the other things that you see in the doc is that these participants are not only interviewees, they're kind of they become actors within their own story to a certain extent, you know, in terms of utilizing other shots of them and, and so on and so forth. Did that come from your scripting that you're like, I'm, go I'm definitely going to need a shot of this person kind of looking like this at, at this point or that kind of thing? And was it difficult to, to get people to sort of do that? I mean, it's it sort of, so one of the things that we, we filmed this entire film remotely. So I never left this room that I'm in now. Actually, one day I did, one visuals day in the UK to do some pickups. The rest of the time, I was here as I'm talking to you. 
and we worked with multiple crews around the world to to do this. I mean, it was an incredible kind of collaborative filmmaking experience. One that you know was, was quite humbling in a way, you know. Um, and so it sort of there were challenges in the way that we filmed it in terms of you know it had to be. I went with a kind of really heightened, stylized approach because um, effectively the story was all online. You know, it all happened online. And also we were quite limited with with COVID and the pandemic. So stuff, you know, moving outdoors was very tricky. So we could do these. So we just put so much into making it look kind of amazing and having the kind of feel of a, of a movie and to try and not make it feel like a, a sort of um, talking head archive, talking head archive, just to make it feel a little bit like, you know, the audience was close to the action and, um, you know, was on their laptop as well, following the story, investigating along with the sleuths. Um, and um, sort of in answer to your question about how planned that was. We were, we were, we were very planned. I mean, we'd have to be, we had to be because of the pandemic. So we would be sending camera plans to the teams on the ground, you know, with, we need this set up, we need that set up. And, you know, because of the equipment that we were dealing with, I mean, like our interview set up, everything is, I mean, we've had an art director. I mean, it was so heightened. It was complete. It, I mean, there was an element of, of the production that felt like maybe it was more akin to drama, you know, in terms of having art directors um, dressing the set, the interview sets. Um, uh, and so the time involved in that, like it'd be four hours to set up a sh- the interview, the master interview shot, and then you'd have three hours for B-roll at the end. And you needed to get four shots out of that, but each move, each time you move the camera, you'd lose 40 minutes. So we were incredibly prescriptive about what we'd want and tried to be incredibly resourceful, you know, reversing the set. Um, and you know what? Across the board, the guys were brilliant. I mean, we'd, we'd sort of, I'd sort of had a chat with them beforehand, just explaining about how we might work and how it might be like that. And they were all, they all kind of got it, and were, you know, were were kind of cool with it. And also, you know, it wasn't like we were asking them to do anything that they wouldn't already do. You know, it was just sort of. But I would be directing them. You know, I'd be sort of, you know, could you maybe just, you know look over there or look out the window or maybe you're thinking this and just try and plant sort of you know to try and get that in the visuals and and you know because I knew we wanted an arsenal of, of of different types of mood shots tension beats whatever for the for the film um because it's not like we were ever going to have reams and reams and reams of, of b-roll or actuality you know it wasn't that kind of film so it was an interesting process but they were all kind of cool with it and really open and, and seemed to enjoy it you know it's amazing to think of you doing that remotely you know, it's if sometimes it can be tricky enough working with real people and, and trying, you know, it doesn't, with some people it just doesn't work. You can't get them to do the type of look you want them to do and, and all that kind of thing. To be actually doing it remotely on top of that, I don't know if that was a maybe a plus or a, or a minus, like in a funny way. And also it's interesting you mentioned, so it, it was actually shot on set. So when you're filming someone in an apartment, it's not their apartment. So maybe that, that creates a different sense of things for them as well. It was a very different vibe, yeah. And, you know, we were quite careful to just say, look, this this is, it might feel weird. And obviously, you know, if there's anything you're uncomfortable with, you know, tell us. And I think there was, you know, there's a couple of points where the, the, you know, a couple of contributors were like, okay, we didn't quite, you know, and I'm like, okay, fine, no, totally. Um, and, you know, so, but none of it, they were all heightened versions. So all of the, you know, we did a big, big location scale because we could we weren't in a position to, in a weird way, like the pandemic and not being able to go there just made us, we had to be so organized and so prepared. So we'd have like big location scouts, you know, we'd sift through, me and Tim Craig, the cinematographer, would sift through, 
you know, we'd be sent 20 houses for an interview, you know, and we'd go through them and go, okay, great. We'd have a day, a tech recce, where we, or a location recce day, where we could um, see three of them. And we'd just be, we'd be a, two heads on an iPad being shown through a, through a house. And, and then we'd have, you know, they'd send us lots of photos and videos. And, and then um, we would then very carefully talk about how, you know, how it needs to be dressed. And so the whole thing, but that was the style of the, you know, they're all, you know, like the newspaper office was a derelict newspaper office, which was quite an incredible set dress, you know, to make it look, I mean, hopefully there are points where it doesn't look empty, but, you know, we had to be very careful, you know, you needed a, a computer screen pulling out, pulling out a sit, you know, you could see it on one desk because if there was a corner of, you know, you just needed a sense of um, other people being there. So actually sound design helped with that, but also we just needed to be very careful about what you could see in shot and whether or not you were just revealing that it was an empty derelict place with nothing in it. So, yeah, um, it was, it was it was really cool, you know. But in terms of the inter- the experience of being me being remote and directing and and the interviewing, I think I was nervous to begin with. We were, you know, Minnow, the production company who who were behind this, were so supportive, and uh, Poppy and Alex and Rachel, who were the production management de- department, were incredibly supportive and just like, okay, we know this is very difficult. We'll take it each step at a time. So when we first started the interviews, none of us had done work remotely before. So it was very much a kind of learning experience. And I was quite nervous that, you know, interviewing on iPad would somehow destroy the intimacy of the interview and people would, you know, wouldn't be able to hear me or it would glitch or whatever. And sure, we had those kind of problems, but overall... Actually, from my point of view, interviewing the contribs, I don't think it really had any significant impact. And and in many ways, when you're doing that kind of this type of production, like on Bad Sport, where you've got, you know, massive cameras and, you know, it's really lit and very produced, you know, I'd often be sitting behind a, a load of blankets anyway, behind an eye direct, and they'd be seeing me through mirrors. So Actually, it wasn't too different. One of the things that I did find hard was just having a sense of the room. Reading the room was very difficult because you couldn't see it. I mean, we had one camera that was set up as a wide, but it just didn't really mean anything. So, yeah. Um, yeah, a good experience. And an amazing, I just think, you know, of, of everything we kind of pulled off in terms of what the production pulled off, um, I think that is some kind of achievement, you know, because it's a very global story and we were we were everywhere, you know, working with Chinese crews, you know, North American, Canadian. Yeah. You'll never have to leave your room again. Well, God, yeah, I know it's depressing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so listen, I mean, you've done kind of more observational, intimate documentaries. I don't know if you've shot stuff yourself in the past. I mean, it's very different, isn't it, to be doing that kind of filmmaking on this kind of filming, I mean, which do you prefer, or is it just depend? It completely depends. I mean, yeah, my background is observational self-shot documentaries. You know, I did that at film school. You know, I've made uh, several docs for like BBC and Channel Four. Um, I've done a lot. You know, I've done a lot of different type of docs. You know, I worked at Factual Entertainment and Channel Four. Um, this is very different, and I don't think people um, realise quite how different it is to to Obstock and. Still, I sometimes find it hard to get my head around, you know, the fact that visually you have to think about it in a different way because you're not going to have actuality. And you're looking for sometimes shots that are more about mood or tension rather than just following a scene. And you don't, and it's also sort of, they're so drink, uh, sync and, and interview driven 
that you just need to think about the interviews in a very different way. And I'm, I mean, with my Obstock stuff, I would, I would be, you know, I, again, I'd be quite sort of specific in what I wanted and, and not set. I mean, I, you know, you, I wouldn't just follow stuff, you know, and also I wasn't ever really, I'd never really done a lot of blue light stuff. So I was never really making Obstocks in, in worlds that were that, where there was a lot of just unfolding drama that you just could sort of point your camera at and you'd get some drama. I kind the kind of obstacles I was doing, there would be, I would be quite used to producing scenes, you know, um, but then they would have much more of a life of their own. You know, you'd maybe, you know, you know, you'd, you'd create a, not create, I don't be careful what I say here, but you'd sort of a scene, you'd, you'd, you'd sort of, um, Kind of position, uh, position, a yeah, scenario. position, yeah, the position a, a scenario, and then it would sort of take a, a life of its own, and that would there would be a real magic that would just come out of that. But in these type of docs, there's less of that. You know, it's much more about the sort of pre-thought, I guess, that's gone into it. But of course, there is, you know, people, you know, do you know, do say things that are kind of unexpected, and but it's a lot more. I kind of have more of a sense of what they're going to say, whereas in Obstocks there is much more of a sense of the unexpected, which you do kind of miss, but I also love the sort of more, um, I love the, the, the structuring that you have to do with this kind of stuff beforehand. And I also, I kind of learned it, I was a bad sport at Raw, you know, Hoop Schemes was made at Raw and I sort of, I very much, um, I'd say I learned it from from those guys actually, particularly like Tim, Tim Wardle and Adam there and Alex and, um, they 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 that was almost like my film school in this kind of this style of of making docs and i guess i'm i'm i very much enjoyed it um but it is different so i don't know i don't know I, i'd never say you know I, it depends on the story really you really have to think it through don't you because people the story is unfolding but it's already happened so you you need to make sure that you get those reveals yeah. those beats really clearly otherwise you know, you, you've kind of lost that opportunity to have the twist that you need. It's it's almost a, a different type of filmmaking. It's, I suppose, sort of become a house style of Raw, going back to the uh, banged up abroad, where the people would reveal their own story and as it happened, little by little, beat by beat. But it gives you a tremendous kind of control over the, the unfolding drama of the story that they're telling. Absolutely. Totally. And it's it's a really, I think it's a really good skill to kind of learn. And and it's effective, you know, because essentially, you know, I mean, bad sport. It's just five guys talking in a room. You know, essentially, it's the same with you know, just just no one. It's like twelve people talking in rooms. You know, and uh, you know, it's it's yeah, you have to be you know very precise about those beats and landing stuff. But that's quite exciting, and that's that's um, that's the challenge. And I guess I, I I'm I'm you know, I'm into it. I like it. I've been enjoying it. Good stuff. <laughs> Take me back a little bit then. I suppose we've talked about stuff you've done in the past. At the moment, we're, we're really in a time, of, a very interesting time in documentary because in certain types of docs, it's just an, it feels like an absolute boom and there's, there's so much happening. Is that something that you've observed as, as your career has gone along? And, and, and now, I suppose, having done these two films for Netflix in a row, um, is that an exciting time to be directing these films and, and the opportunities that are there with the right ideas to be making stuff that allows you to have that kind of filmmaker control, I suppose, uh, at budgets that allow you to do the things you want to do? 
It's absolutely incredible. I mean, I was saying to someone the other day, I mean, I, I kind of, I think my first film was, I made Channel 4 back in 2009 or 2008, 2009. Um, it's a completely different industry. Um, I mean, I never in a million years would have thought that I'd be making this type of film. I didn't really even have much of a sense of this kind of doc. You know, it was all, you know, obstock at the time. And, and, and you know, obviously it's changed massively with the streamers. Uh, they have, you know, they've been a game changer. Um, and I feel like, yeah, I mean, it's a very exciting time. I mean, there's never seems to be there's never been more of an appetite for content as as it's as it's referred to, um, or you know, really good films. Um, and as a director, it feels very exciting. Um, and also, I guess you know, I've really enjoyed working with Netflix. Um, John and Kate there have been amazing, amazingly supportive. I feel like they. For directors, it's a very good place to work. They, they're very supportive and trusting of you. And um, I feel like there was a sense maybe in the world of, you know, Obstock and the TV that I was doing that just go and shoot it and direct the sort of idea of directing was sort of devalued in some way. Um, and it feels like there's sort of the importance of, of, of directing and uh, it's sort of, having a kind of renaissance at the moment um yeah um but it has i mean it's so changed and in terms of the budgets as well i mean it's completely it's completely ridiculous you know i think my first film i made a half hour film for channel four and i think it was 50 grand you know and now you're dealing with these really healthy budgets that allow you to play with all sorts of toys and and just visualize the film in a, and, and conceive it in a completely different way. So going back to 2009, Luke, then, if he was starting now, what would you say to him about navigating this industry the way it is? I mean, when I started, it felt like there were a lot, like Channel 4 did this, this series called Three Minute Wonders. They had this strand then called First Cut. And you had, there was a sort of, there was kind of a ladder that you could you could kind of cl sort of climb um, a talent ladder, and there were opportunities for sort of you to do stuff where you know there wasn't that much at stake, I guess, in terms of you know budgets. And it, it feels like those strands have slightly disappeared. Um, so uh, it does. It's very hard for me to say because it's it's just a completely a completely different industry but the thing that I'd always done and when I was at film school is just making stuff and so I don't think I would have changed anything you know particularly really I think it's um and actually like I think Netflix is you know there's a scheme I think they've run at the moment actually a, a, a young chap that I sort of mentor the NFCS he's um he's actually just graduated and I think he's just been accepted onto a, a Netflix sort of um short film fund so there are things like that out there, and I guess you just got to plug away at with uh, you know plug away at those kind of things like you know like you always do really make your own stuff. Um, I think being able to shoot is really really important, and still you know that is you know the backbone of of you know docs on TV. You know observational documentary hasn't gone away, and I have a feeling it will come back again as you know on these these streamers. I guess the, maybe the harder thing with Oldstock is it's it's harder to sort of predict because you you kind of you're taking a bit more of a risk because you know it hasn't all happened. You know, whereas retrospective stories, 
you have more of a handle on what the story is and I guess they're less risky in that sense. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Um, it seemed very exciting to me back then and it seems very exciting now. So I wonder if now it's that if you were maybe starting out, you would be looking for someone to really make more of a visual statement, you know, because, because when budgets, when there, I suppose, are opportunities out there, like there are, people are looking for directors maybe that can make a statement, whereas before maybe it was a little bit more about, and still is about storytelling, but to separate yourself, to do, to do something that's kind of like a visual, I'm just wondering, as I think about it, a visual statement that sort of says, look, I can do a documentary, but I can make it look amazing. If that might be appropriate in a way or excite people um, in these bigger budget doc spaces. It may well do. It's hard to know. I mean, I always think that it's still, I still am of the feeling, though, that it's about storytelling, ultimately, and your grasp of that and your ability to embrace that and push that, actually, more so than the visuals. Because I think that, you know, I hadn't, I wouldn't say, you know, I felt like my, my self-shot stuff was decent, you know, it looked, you know, but it wasn't like, I don't think it was sort of, setting the world on fire, you know, it wasn't changing the narrative in, in terms of filmmaking or anything. And I think, but I think that, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, working, you know, doing bad sport and working with people like Tim Cragg, who, who, you know, I learned a lot from in terms of actually thinking about turning the visuals up to 11 or 12 and, and, you know, just thinking about things in a different way was really helpful. So I, 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 I mean, yeah, it's not going to hurt, is it? If you've made this incredibly visual film, but, I do think ultimately um, actually doing this type of stuff, you really need to have a really strong grasp of the story because otherwise I think you're going you're gonna to struggle because they are so tight. You know, a lot of them, a lot of these stuff, I mean, I, maybe there's a sense that there's too many of them, but they're so tight in terms of the storytelling. I keep hearing Tim's name everywhere. He Tim must Craig. have, Yeah, he must have uh, – <laughs> somehow managed to uh, clone himself and work on several projects at a time. So uh, maybe the remote thing has helped in that regard. <laughs> he's always working, man. He loves it, that guy. Um, no, but he's great. And, and it's sort of, I mean, no wonder. I mean, he's, he's you know, he's, uh, I, I mean, an amazing cinematographer to, to, to work with. And, and actually, one of the things, going back to the remote shooting on Trust No One, um, I... I mean, there's no way that we could have pulled that off without Tim. I mean, we were working with some incredibly talented, you know, drama DOPs and out in the States and Canada and China. But um, I, I needed Tim. Tim was amazing at helping make sure that, you know, the film had a, a unifying look to it and also just communicating with, you know, I've got my relationship with Tim and Tim kind of knows what I like and what I, what I want, but it's, I, I, I don't have the sort of language to be able to talk to DAPs in the way that he was. And he was very, um, you know, he was directing the DAPs in a very, you know, incredibly sort of intricate manner. You know, he had obviously, you know, they have their language, their DAP language that he was able to kind of communicate. And that was, that was amazing watching him work. And, and also incredible for those guys that they were so patient to work like that. And actually um, one of the things we were worried about is, you know, DAPs working with other DAPs. I mean, that's not really a relationship that generally happens, you know. But actually, a lot of them have done sort of, you know, second unit and steady cam on 
big feature dramas and stuff. So it 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 it, it worked well, and they were incredibly patient and um, like a joy to work with. Um, so it was it was amazing in that way. Tell me this then, in, in terms of this kind of new world of, of recent years, in terms of the types of projects that can be done, has that changed the kinds of projects that you now think about doing? Uh, yes, yes, it's completely changed here. And also the world has got, you know, smaller in a sense, you know, I'm getting contacted by uh, people in America um, about projects and also sort of agencies about representation and also sort of you know more of a push to generate you know you know my own stuff get that off the ground have more of a stake in that um uh so it's it has changed things massively and in terms of the stories yeah i mean it's it's um i mean i yeah but i think you have to keep to your you have to stick to your guns you know i'm sort of i'll often get several emails about various different stories or you know want to do this project it's going to be you know, it's for this streamer and, and it, everything sounds kind of amazing. And, you know, I'm sure it kind of is, but yeah, I guess you have to stick to your guns in terms of what it is about, you know, why you should be making something or what it is about that story that makes you want to make it or draws you to it. And, you know, as long as you stick to that, I, I don't think you can go too far wrong. And I guess that's what I always try and do really. Um, but it is exciting um, when, various people you know get in touch and and you know offer you these kind of things um but yeah i mean i i guess what's what's been exciting and what i've really loved about making trust no one and actually like why i feel why i've really like working with 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 with, with kind of netflix you know at the moment is um these stories that feel like they wouldn't have existed like five or ten years ago you know like trust no one is i mean it just wouldn't have happened you know 10 15 years ago and that's quite exciting feels like you're making something very contemporary um and at the sort of forefront of, of of something like that so i'm kind of still in the market for that kind of territory and that's sort of where i'm looking um going forward okay then last question in terms of putting your work out there then when you're on you, you know i interviewed um filmmakers who made the tinder swindler which was you know obviously a huge success and i think the last time i looked at it had over 50 million views around the world it's incredible and you just think of how global these films become when they're on a streaming platform how's that been from the point of view of you know you're making a film and you know that any you know there's potentially hundreds of millions of people that could today choose to watch it it's quite mind-boggling yeah it's completely it's, i mean i try not to think about it to be honest <laughs> I try, um it's yeah it's i mean it's really cool uh it's amazing i mean you want to look i like telling stories and I, I want to kind of please an audience you know i quite have quite simple motivations really and so reaching all these people is you know really appealing but also i guess at the same time um really it's all about my mum watching it but yeah i mean it's like it's incredible it's it's incredible um and just you know i've used to be doing stuff for you know the uk market really only and um to be able to do stuff that has a global audience is you know privilege you know i mean that's i think what you know we make this stuff because we want it to be watched i think you know so yeah but it's also daunting but hopefully let's hope it does as well as tinder swindler fingers crossed <laughs> Um, yeah, if we get a fraction of the love that that had, I'd be very happy. And if my mum likes it, I'll be happy.
Well, listen, best of luck with it. I hope it does as well as the, as the tin, Tinder Swindler. I find that hard to say, actually. The oh, no, we've cursed it. We've cursed it now, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I hope it's a great film. Well done. And, and, and it, it's such a, an interesting contemporary area. And there's so many rabbit holes you had to go down, but it, it absolutely works. And I really enjoyed it. So I hope it does really well for you. Well done. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ross. Thanks again to Luke for taking part in the interview. Trust No One, The Hunt for the Crypto King is available to watch on Netflix from March 30th, 2022. Thanks to Stephen Galvin and Phil Marlin for supporting the podcast and to film composer Michael Fleming for kindly providing the music for this podcast. You can find more of it at michaelflemingmusic.com. And thanks to you for listening.